Thanks for joining us for this episode of the True Crime Sisters podcast. We hope that life's treating you well. We know it has been a little while between podcasts, so it's good to be back. Today we're going to be discussing events that took place at the busy Lint Cafe on the corner of Phillip Street and Martin Place in Sydney's CBD on the 15th and 16th of December 2014. It was a gorgeous, sunny summer day in Sydney. It was 25 degrees and humid. The morning started out like any other before it. Customers were grabbing their morning coffees, hot chocolates and breakfasts. It was only 10 days until Christmas as well, so people were in the city picking up Christmas gifts for loved ones. Sydney was buzzing with people starting their work days. The Lint Cafe is located on the ground floor and has high ceilings and polished granite floors. It was the place of choice for many lawyers and professional business people who worked in the surrounding buildings. At 8.33am, a a man named Man Haron Monis entered the cafe and sat down at table 36, which was fairly close to the main entrance. He was served by a young waitress named Ali Chen, who happily brought him his requested black tea. As far as she was concerned, his behaviour at the time appeared normal. Soon after this, another young waitress, 19-year-old Fiona Ma, began her work shift and also served Monis. Fiona, like many of the other young workers at the cafe, was a part-time worker, trying to earn a little bit of money while studying. She was actually studying dentistry at uni and had only been working at the cafe for around a week. The man inquired about what cakes he could order and Fiona showed him the display case where they were stored. He selected the Velour Chocolate Cheesecake, which was brought to him shortly after. 19-year-old Jared Morton Hoffman watched anxiously as the man picked at the cake he had just made, concerned that he had stuffed it up. It was unusual for Jared to be working the morning shift. He usually worked the afternoons. When Fiona brought him the cake, Monis asked for another pot of tea and asked if he could be moved to table 40, which was adjacent to the main door. Fiona said yes, that would be fine, and let Ellie know that he wanted to move, as she was his main server. Fiona thought that the man seemed like a nice customer, but didn't think too much more about him at that stage. Monis then asked another staff member, Harriet Denny, to watch his bag while he went to the toilet, which she said would be fine, and thought nothing more of it. Monis returned to the table just before 9.40am and called Fiona over to the table. He asked her for the name of the manager. Fiona told him it was Tori, and Monist asked if he could speak to him. Fiona agreed and thought to herself that Monist probably wanted to complain about the service that he'd received. She watched as the cafe manager, Tori Johnson, approached the table and sat down opposite Monist. Jared noticed the interaction between Monis and Tori and noticed that Tori appeared nervous, which was out of character for him. Tori motioned for Jared to come over and said to him something along the lines of, I need you to go and get the keys and lock all the doors. We're closed. Everything is okay. Tell the staff to stay calm. Jared knew Tori well and knew from his demeanour that everything was not going to be okay. The staff members at the cafe were like family and regularly socialised together, 
and Jared knew that Tori was anxious and nervous. As it turned out, Man Monis had handed Tori a note which read, Australia is under attack by the Islamic State. There are three bombs in three different locations in Martin Place, Circular Quay and George Street. I want to contact other brothers and ask them not to explode the other two bombs, but I can't contact because they don't carry phone with them. They have radio with them. I can say that through Radio ABC. The plan is to request Tony Abbott to call them or me and to have a debate whilst it is broadcast live on ABC National Radio. For those listening from other countries, Tony Abbott was the Prime Minister of Australia. So that's why they have radio. And the best way to contact them is by my voice message to announce that they should not explode the bombs. They listen to me anything I tell them. The devices placed inside the radio is another way of exploding the bombs. After Tori told Jared to lock the door, Jared went into the cafe kitchen and spoke to another staff member, Paolo, about the possibility that there was something happening outside of the cafe. Another staff member, Joel, walked up and Jared gave him a pair of scissors and a Stanley knife telling him something along the lines of, dude, have these just in case, something doesn't feel right. Joel put the items in the front pocket of his apron, but was unsure what was going on. He just knew that Jared had told him to be careful. Jared got the keys out of Tori's bag and locked the doors of the main entrance, as well as the entrance leading to the foyer. CCTV confirms that the doors were locked at approximately 9.40am. At 9.41am, Tori Johnson used Monis's phone to make a phone call to triple zero. Tori let the operator know that he needed to read a message from a gunman and told the operator basically what the note had said. Despite what was going on, business continued as usual for many of the staff members and customers who were still unaware of what was taking place inside the cafe. Two customers, a mother and daughter, Louisa and Robin Hope, went to the counter to pay for their breakfast when they overheard the other customers complaining that the cafe doors wouldn't open. At this point, Tori was still on the phone to triple zero. At the same time, people were trying to get into the cafe, including a staff member who was due to begin his shift at 10am. He was trying to get the attention of other staff members inside the cafe, but nobody was letting him in. Moments after this, Fiona held up a sign to the people outside the door, which just said closed. This was then attached to the door by staff member Joel. One of the customers outside of the doors wanting to enter was watching Tori and man Monis when she noticed that Monis suddenly stood up and pulled out a sawn-off shotgun from his blue bag. She quickly let the other waiting customers know what she'd seen and ushered them out of the foyer before calling triple zero to report what she'd seen. Inside the cafe, one of the customers, Selena Winpay, paid her bill and then was told by a staff member that she would not be able to leave as the doors were locked. Selena told the waitress that she had a meeting to get to and she needed to leave. She was then pointed to Tori, the manager, who was speaking to triple zero. She had stopped into the Lint Cafe earlier that morning to grab some Christmas gifts and had decided to have a hot chocolate since she had some spare time. This was very out of character for her because she usually didn't stray from her morning coffee. As Selena approached the table to talk to Tori, Monis stood up and made eye contact with her before pulling a shotgun out of his bag and addressing everyone in the room. 
Everything is going to be all right. You're all safe. The manager is speaking to the police, so do not panic. Everything is going to be all right. There is a bomb here. There are other bombs as well. One is at Circular Quay and another at the town hall. He told the people inside the cafe, this is an attack on Australia by the Islamic State in response to the terror Australia has caused for Iraq. If you try to run, I'll shoot you. If you escape, I'll shoot someone else. It took a moment for everyone in the cafe to understand what was going on. Obviously, this wasn't a normal situation and it took a bit of time for the gravity of it to set in. Staff and customers had been moved to one side of the cafe, except for Tori, who was still on the phone in the middle of the room, trying to let emergency services know about Monis's demands. He told them that if police approached the cafe, the bombs would be exploded by the brothers, who were supposedly Monis's co-conspirators. The hostages were asked to put all their belongings on a table. Most of the hostages inside the cafe put their phones and wallets on the table. Monis then put on a headband with Arabic writing on it. He then demanded that the hostages be positioned in front of the cafe's doors and windows with their hands up and their eyes closed. This would be an image that many Australians will remember as it was streamed live on TV, hostages terrified and crying with their hands up against the window. They were being used as human shields and symbols of terror. As they stood against the windows, the hostages truly felt as though it was only a matter of time before the gunmen would shoot them in the heads and kill them all. At approximately 10am, Monis brought a black Arabic flag out of his bag, which he told Jared to hold up to the window facing out to the main street. It was initially thought that this flag may belong to ISIS, but it was quickly established that it was a declaration of the Muslim faith. Monis treated each of the hostages differently, taking an instant disliking to some of them. He seemed particularly hostile towards Tory, and he would only refer to him as manager. He designated 52-year-old Louisa Hope to be the secretary of the group and to make the phone calls on behalf of him, but because she was stuttering in fear, he told her she was useless. Jared then offered to make the phone calls to the media and police negotiators. Monis seemed to have a huge problem with 40-year-old Stefan Balafutis, another strong man. It seemed that perhaps he perceived he and Tory as more of a threat than the others. Monis reportedly continually threatened to kill Tory and accused him of lying to them. Despite the fact that the hostages in the cafe could not see much police activity or help on the outside of the cafe, behind the scenes police were responding. They moved people that were on the streets away from the Lint Cafe as well as clearing surrounding office buildings. At one stage, a police officer, Senior Constable Withers, actually made his way quietly into the foyer of the Lint Cafe to clear out the upper levels. He saw two of the hostages, Marcia and April, with their hands raised against the glass door. Marcia tried to communicate with him, indicating that there was one gunman. At approximately 10am, Withers radioed his observations of Monis, stating, Radio. The shooter is male Caucasian, with a beard, early 50s. He's wearing a black backpack, a black vest, a white t-shirt underneath. He has a sawn-off shotgun. He also has what appears to be a wire running from his backpack out to his person. 
Soon after this, he was told by his supervisors to leave the foyer. But before he did, he showed Marcia his name badge and let her know that he would return soon. He hadn't wanted to leave the foyer, but it was decided that if any contact was to be made between police officers and the cafe, it should be from trained hostage negotiators. The initial strategy by Assistant Police Commissioner Fuller was to contain and negotiate because it was decided that storming the cafe at this stage would increase the risk to hostages. A tactical advisor was brought in to draw up an emergency action plan in case the contain and negotiate strategy didn't work out. The emergency action plan would be put into action if a certain trigger were to take place in the cafe. Police were not to enter the cafe unless it was absolutely necessary for the safety of the hostages. At around 10.50 in the morning, two police snipers were placed on the top of the Network 7 building, which is across the road from the Link Cafe. This was a prime position because it had a straight view of all four windows of the cafe. The snipers quickly determined that the windows of the cafe were bullet-resistant and it wouldn't be possible for them to fire shots into the building without allowing the gunman to possibly injure hostages. At 10.42am, hostage negotiators placed a call to the phone that Tory Johnson had used to contact Triple Zero. They assumed that this was most likely Monis's phone. It was answered by a hostage, Louisa Hope, who told negotiators that Monis demanded to speak with Tony Abbott. The phone call between Louisa and hostage negotiators only went for a minute or so. At around 11am, another phone call was placed to the cafe by hostage negotiators, and this time the phone was answered by Fiona Ma. She basically repeated the same thing that Louisa Hope had said previously. For the next 45 minutes, phone calls placed by the hostage negotiators into the cafe went unanswered. Assistant Commissioner Fuller initially approved Monis's request for contact between he and the ABC on the proviso that he released some of the hostages but for some reason, the hostage negotiators failed to organise this. At 11.36am, Jared Morton Hoffman made a phone call to SBS, which lasted approximately 11 minutes. He told them Monis' demands and gave them information about the bombs and the brothers that Monis had said were waiting outside the cafe to explode the bombs. Some of the hostages had also managed to hold onto their mobile phones and were secretly contacting loved ones when they had the opportunity. They would wait until Monis allowed them to go to the toilet and use the opportunity to send text messages. Fiona Ma, in particular, was very generous in allowing others to use her phone despite the risks this would pose to her own safety. She was in a unique position because Monis appeared to trust her and allowed her to accompany people to and from the toilet. While Jared and Joel were standing at the window, they made eye contact and both thought about the Stanley knives in their pockets. Both were thinking about trying to overpower and stab the gunman, but the risk was too high. Both considered what would happen if they missed and something went wrong. Jared noticed that the gun was sitting in the gunman's lap and it was pointed directly at Julie Taylor's back. And if they did decide to attack him, he was worried that she would be shot. Monis was identified when a police officer, Detective Senior Constable Adam Thompson, recognised him when he was watching the siege unfold on TV. He had worked on a murder case in which Monis was a suspect. It was actually the murder of Monis's ex-wife, and Thompson obviously contacted police to report that he believed the perpetrator 
was Man Haron Monis. Just after 11am, a strike force was assembled, which was named Eagle, to investigate Monis and what his potential motives were in taking his hostages. By midday, the buildings and streets around the Lint Cafe had been completely evacuated. Inside the cafe, Monis moved around using his hostages as human shields by ensuring that he had them covering the windows and doors. He was reportedly aggressive and threatening towards the hostages, often pointing his gun at them as he ranted and raved. At 12.25pm, Jared Morton Hoffman called 2GB radio station and passed on a demand from Monis that police move away from the cafe or he would shoot someone, confirming that they could see police from the cafe. A sign was also held up for police to see, which said, Leave or he will kill us all. Please go. Jared then called triple zero and repeated the same thing. While the call was taking place, Monis aimed his shotgun at Louisa Hope's back and threatened to shoot if police were not moved away within two minutes. Jared's voice gave away how scared he was, and there was no doubt that he fully believed that the threat would be carried out if the police didn't move back. Police did move back so that they could no longer be seen through the window. Monis made it very clear that he wanted the siege to be covered by media outlets and frequently told the hostages that they needed to contact the media and report that the siege was an attack on Australia by the Islamic State. He also had them check online media reports about the siege and stream radio coverage into the cafe. At around 12.40pm, Monis heard on the radio station 2GB that it was confirmed that the flag he was holding up was not an Islamic State flag, but was an Islamic Shahada flag. When Monis heard this, he had Jared speak to hostage negotiators and demand that an ISIS flag be placed on the doorstep of the cafe. He said in exchange he would release one hostage. Police were concerned that if he was given an IS flag, it may encourage him to execute hostages and amplify his behaviour, so his request was not approved. Throughout the day, families of hostages began to learn that their loved ones were being held hostage in the cafe. Police officers created a space for the family members of the siege victims in a room in the Supreme Court building, which had toilets and facilities for them to make hot drinks. This is where the families would wait for hours on end for any news about their loved ones. Police continued to try and make contact with Monis, however most calls to his phone either went unanswered or were answered by the victims in the cafe, most frequently Jared and Marcia. Monis would actually refuse to speak to the hostage negotiators as he got more and more angry that his requests were being ignored. The hostages were also beginning to get frustrated with the hostage negotiators out of their own fear. Why were their demands not being met so that they could be released? At approximately 2.22pm, under Monis's direction, Jared told negotiators that Monis would release one hostage in exchange for an ISIS flag and two hostages if the media made it clear that the siege was an attack on Australia by the Islamic State. Monis continued to make the hostages stand in the windows of the cafe well into the afternoon, facing outwards with their eyes closed. The hostages remained distressed and worried about what Monis would do to them. According to them, Monis's behaviour would change rapidly as he went from kind to aggressive and unpredictable within minutes. This rapid change in his behaviour was what scared them the most. 
Louisa Hope, one of the older women in the cafe, was exempt from standing at the window because she carried a walking stick and had multiple sclerosis. He also let Robin Hope, Louisa's mother, as well as 82-year-old John O'Brien, sit down because they were elderly. For most of the day, Monis sat in the back corner of the cafe and positioned hostages around him at all times, presumably so that he would not be shot at by snipers. At some point during the day, Ali Chen started vomiting and hyperventilating and she was allowed to lay down on the cafe floor. Slowly, as the day went on, she dropped out of Monis's awareness. Monis continued to show little concern for his hostages, despite asking them about their personal lives, their religions, their families and their health. Robin became angry at the way Monis was treating her and told him so. She said she was not impressed by his attitude or decision to hold them hostage. Monis told Louisa Hope to keep her mother quiet, so Louisa said, Mum, you're an old lady, be quiet. <laughs> she was concerned that her mother would get herself killed by Monis. This didn't stop Robin from having another go before saying, I'm a 72-year-old lady and I need to go to the toilet and my daughter needs her medication. While John O'Brien, the elderly male hostage, was sitting at his table, he was looking around trying to gather ideas about how he could escape from the cafe. He noticed there was a green push button that would open the main doors and allow him to escape into the street and thought that there may be enough room for him to squeeze through to get to it. He slowly inched his way towards the door. A couple of times, Monis noticed him moving and told him to stop, at one point even telling him to lay on the floor. John refused to do what Monis said. He said he was too old to be laying on the floor, and Monis left it there. Nearby, another hostage, Stefan Balafoudis, had also noticed the green button near the main entrance. He suggested to one of the other hostages, Julie Taylor, that they press it and escape, but she discouraged him, no doubt terrified what would happen if they were caught. Stefan was desperate to escape, in particular because Monis was acting more hostile towards him than some of the other hostages. Stefan felt like if Monis did decide to kill a hostage, it would probably be him. Monis referred to him only as white shirt man and spoke to him in an aggressive tone. Stefan noticed John looking in the direction of the green button and an area that he could squeeze through to get to it. Stefan quietly whispered to John, Can you get past? And the two quietly had a chat about whether they thought the green button would open the door. John then asked Monis if he could go to the toilet. He took the opportunity to ask Fiona Ma if she knew whether the green button would open the door. As she was new to the cafe, Fiona told John that she wasn't sure if the green button would open the door or not. At 3.35pm, John crouched down and moved through to the green button. He pushed it and the main doors opened and he ran out. Stefan saw John's escape and followed him, with both men running to safety where they were grabbed by police officers and brought into a loading dock next to the cafe. At the same time, an employee of the cafe, Paolo Vasalo, was thinking about ways that he could escape and had the back door of the cafe in mind. When he had been to the toilet throughout the siege, he had detoured through the kitchen so that he could make sure that there was no boxes blocking the door. He felt there was a strong possibility that this was a viable escape route for him. He asked Fiona whether she would come with him when he tried to escape, 
but bravely Fiona stated that she would not be leaving others behind so she would stay in the cafe. While John and Stefan were escaping, Paolo saw his opportunity while everyone was distracted and made his way to the kitchen. He ran to the rear door through the fire exit and made it out to Phillip Street, where he was brought to safety by police immediately. As John and Stefan were escaping, a water glass shattered to the floor and the tables moved loudly, sending Monis into chaos. He was furious and pointed his shotgun at Jared's head. Monis then said he should have shot Stefan, or white shirt man, when he had the opportunity. He also seemed to think that police had played a role in the escape of the two men. He went into a frantic state, yelling an eye for an eye. The hostages begged and pleaded with Monis to calm down and reassured him that the police had nothing to do with the escape. The men had just run out on their own accord. Monis threatened the hostages that he should shoot someone to make an example. He said if anyone else escaped, there would be one hostage shot for each escapee. He made a deal with the hostages and made them agree that for everyone that escaped, someone would die, which they all agreed to. Monis used this against them, stating, if you choose to leave, you are basically a murderer. You're choosing for someone to die. After the first escape, another hostage, April Bay, was starting to plan her own escape. She felt as though even if all the hostages obeyed Monis's orders, people might still be killed, and she didn't want to stick around to be one of them. April and another hostage, Ali Chen, who had been sick earlier, managed to hide under Table 40, where Monis's vision of them was blocked. The rest of the hostages were forced to surround Monis like a barricade. Ali was scared when April said she was going to escape and told her not to, but April's mind was made up. She had spotted a bolt lock at the top and bottom of the foyer doors and felt like she might be able to unlock the door and get out. She first stood up slowly and eased the top bolt down so that it was unlocked, before doing the same to the bottom. Ali coughed to hide any noise of the bolts being moved. At 4.58pm, April quietly approached the doors and then pushed one open and ran, followed closely by Ali Chen. Both women ran down Martin Place and into the arms of waiting officers. Amazingly, apart from Jared, who had seen the escape, Monis and the other hostages didn't notice the girls' escape. The hostages were still being made to monitor the media, so it wasn't long before it was broadcast that two women had escaped, and despite best efforts by Jared to keep the news from Monis, he eventually heard it. The hostages were again terrified that he would shoot someone in retribution for the escape, and again tried to placate him. Jared tried to convince him that the media were lying and only three escaped since Monis didn't seem to remember April or Paolo. He seemed to let it go after that, opting not to kill anyone at this point. Monis was growing increasingly paranoid the longer the siege went on. Every hour the ice machine would go off and he would jump up frantically yelling, it's the police, someone has to die, before the hostages would calm him down. At around 5.30pm, when Monis's demands still hadn't been met, one of the hostages suggested that they post the demands on social media in the form of Facebook posts and videos. At 5.28pm, Marcia McCall 
put up a post letting people know that Australia was under attack by the Islamic State and repeated the demands of Monis. They recorded videos and sent them out to media outlets and group texted everybody in their phones to try and get the word out there that they wanted the demands met. At 7.51pm, Marcia posted again on Facebook that police weren't cooperating and the demands were not being met. She pled for help and said, we don't want to die. At 7.32, when none of the videos had been broadcast by the media, one of the hostages, Joel, uploaded four videos of the hostages pleading to YouTube. When the sun went down, very little could be seen of what was going on inside the cafe from the outside. There were no lights on and the surveillance equipment that had been set up earlier was poor quality. At around 9pm, surveillance captured Monis telling hostages that they would be able to earn merit points if they did the right thing and debit points if they did the wrong thing. Monis continued to rant about how the police showed no respect for him by not giving in to his demands. He demanded that all the hostages gather around him in the corner of the cafe, creating a barrier around him. At one stage, actually clutching on to Julie Taylor and pointing a gun at her back, using her as a human shield as he moved around the cafe, checking for any signs of police. The hostages began to grow more concerned because as time went by, Monis was growing more and more paranoid. Every noise was sending him into a tirade. At 11pm, Monis told the hostages they could make phone calls to their loved ones, which many of them did. These phone calls obviously made hostage negotiators very worried because it was seen that it could be the signal of the end of the siege. At approximately 12.35am, Selena and Marcia tried to contact negotiators and then triple zero to let them know that Monis was demanding that all streetlights in Martin Place outside the cafe be shut off immediately or the hostages would be hurt. With every call hostages made to triple zero, it was noted that they were growing increasingly frustrated and distraught. Many of them were wondering why such simple demands weren't being met for their safety. It must have felt like their lives weren't being valued. At 12.12am, Selena contacted one of the hostage negotiators and told him that if the blue light outside the cafe wasn't turned off within 15 minutes, she was going to be shot. Despite this, 15 minutes passed and Monis didn't follow through with the shooting. But you can only imagine how scared Selena must have been as the time passed. At 1.43am, Tory Johnson sent a text to his partner Thomas, which said that Monis was increasingly agitated and walks around when he hears a noise outside with a hostage in front of him. He wants to release one person out of good faith. Tell the police. Thomas did this, but nothing came of it. By 2am, the hostages were still huddled around Monis in the back corner of the cafe, and Monis continued to grow more paranoid by the minute. He continued to talk about how the media and police were ignoring his demands, and also grew more angry when he realised the YouTube videos they had released earlier had been taken down. Jared tried to calm him down, reassuring him that many people had probably copied them to their computers and re-uploaded them. Sixteen hours into the siege, both the hostages and Monis were growing tired. A few of the hostages noticed that Monis was yawning and took note his mood was also crumbling. As 2am came, Monis's attitude took an abrupt and dangerous change when he reportedly heard a loud noise outside the cafe. 
he ordered Jared, Fiona and Selena to gather around him, stating, we go together. The group moved towards the kitchen where Monas inspected the area. He demanded that Jared remain at the foyer doors, which Jared assumed was so he was shielding the doors. As he moved back towards the other hostages, Selena could be heard saying on the surveillance, shoot him, they have to shoot him. They had all noticed the extreme change in his behaviour. The hostages were losing hope that the siege was going to end peacefully. This prompted Jared to make the decision that he would, quote, leave the cafe with as many hostages as we would be able to get out. Attempts at placating Monas were finished. This was the first time he had left the room throughout the day. Jared was aware that the foyer doors were open and made eye contact with co-workers Joel and Harriet. All of the hostages were making eye contact with each other, silently deciding who would run while Monas was busy stacking boxes at the back door. Jared then whispered to the other hostages, I'm going, I'm going, we have to go. Most, but not all of the hostages heard him. He then turned, opened the foyer doors and ran, followed by other hostages, Pospendu, Joel, Harriet, Vizoire and Julie. The group ran down Martin Place until they were met by waiting police on Elizabeth Street. Monas heard the escape and moved quickly back into the main area of the cafe, firing a shotgun in the direction of the escaping hostages. Thankfully, he just missed Julie as she left, although she was showered with glass from the door shattered by the gunshot. This didn't stop her from running as fast as she could. The remaining hostages ducked down and hid at the sound of gunshots. With this escape, it was time for police to closely assess the situation and whether it was time to move in on Monas. They were trying to figure out whether the threat would be increasing or decreasing after the gunshot and escape. The escaped hostages told waiting officers that Monas had shot directly at them when they were running. Inside the cafe, Monas called Tory Johnson over to him and said, kneel down and put your hands on your head forcing him into an execution stance. Tactical officers saw what was happening and believed that the move was significant. Reportedly at 2.11am, Monas fired a second shot into the wall of the cafe, although a number of the hostages don't recall this taking place. Fiona believed that the gun would have to be reloaded after firing the second shot and therefore thought this would be the perfect time to escape, pushing the green button and running. She was safely received by officers. At this stage, only six hostages remained in the cafe. Reportedly, after Fiona's escape, Monas began to breathe heavily. He appeared to be psyching himself up and making gestures. Louisa Hope would later describe it as an athlete pumping themselves up for an event. He then shot Tory Johnson in the back of the head. Tory jolted forward and fell to the ground with his arms by his side, which was witnessed by two snipers. Now it was finally time for emergency action to take place. The teams in place waiting for the action call began to move towards the cafe. Officers entered the cafe from both sides and were reportedly shot at twice by Monas. In response, two officers began shooting back at Monas. Shrapnel and bullet fragments flew throughout the cafe. Monas was shot by an officer identified only as Officer A, who would state in evidence... Once through the door, I had my light source and laser on Monas. I remember him standing, facing in my direction, slightly on an angle, with his shotgun in front. 
probably a bit lower, pointing in our direction. I remember I started to engage Monas, sorry, fire at Monas, ensuring my laser pointer was on his chest. I continued to engage him as I walked forward. I never took my eyes off him. I do remember moving my laser pointer to his head area, where I engaged a number of times. I can't be sure of the number of further times. I continued to fire at him until he went to the ground, and that's when I stopped firing. It was reported that Officer A shot at Monas 17 times. After Monas was shot and killed, emergency services began the attempt to rescue and remove the remaining hostages from the cafe. Louisa and Robin Hope, as well as Marcia, had all been struck by either bullet fragments or shrapnel. Officers ran in and carried them out to safety, where they received first aid and were transported to the Prince of Wales, Royal Prince Alfred and the Royal North Shore Hospitals. Tori was also removed from the cafe and taken to receive first aid, but devastatingly it was quickly established that he couldn't be saved. He was placed in an ambulance before being transported to the Royal Prince Alfred Hospital, where he was formally declared dead. Another hostage, Katrina Dawson, was hidden under furniture in the cafe and was found unconscious. She was alive when she was found, but was bleeding heavily. Paramedics conducted an examination and then removed her from the cafe, where they tried to resuscitate her. She was transported to the Royal Prince Alfred Hospital, where doctors and nurses tried to save her. Sadly, like Tori, she was unable to be saved. It was later revealed that Katrina had been the victim of at least seven gunshot wounds from police firearms when the police stormed the cafe. She had been hit in the right shoulder, right upper back, left shoulder, left upper back and neck area, and twice in the right side of her neck. Understandably, Katrina's family would later speak out in anger against the two New South Wales police officers whose bullets killed Katrina, as well as the higher-up officers who were behind the scenes. They believed that the fact that the trigger was the death of a hostage was far too extreme and the police should have moved in far earlier. The Dawson family was also frustrated by the lack of communication between the Federal Police and the New South Wales Police in exchanging information about Monis' history. As well as this, they were critical of a psychiatrist that, quote, grossly underestimated Monis' capacity for violence. Towards the end of the siege, police relied heavily on a psychiatrist to provide them with insight into Monis' state of mind. The flawed advice from this psychiatrist suggested that it was unlikely that Monis would act violently, which left commanders to hold back on ordering police to storm the cafe earlier. He had wrongly told police they shouldn't treat Monis' attack as a terror attack by the Islamic State because it wasn't consistent with the usual methods. However, he didn't take into account the fact that the Islamic State had been calling for lone wolf attackers for years. The psychiatrist thought Monis was bluffing. This advice was heavily relied on by the night commander. And had this advice been different and the cafe stormed earlier, things may have been different. In fact, just 15 minutes before Tory's execution, the psychiatrist said he was confident the siege was coming to a peaceful resolution. The very next morning, people began to place flowers in Martin Place in memory of the two victims who were killed in the siege, Tory Martin and Katrina Dawson. This became known as the Field of Flowers. After the siege, the Australian public was shocked and distressed. 
Many people questioned why it took police so long to respond to the situation. Why did somebody have to be murdered for police to enter the cafe? It would take 16 months and 119 witness testimonies for the coronial inquest into the siege to be completed into the police response to this terrorist hostage incident. There were many minutes between when Tory Johnson was ordered to his knees and when he was executed, and there was much criticism of police for waiting for his murder before activating their emergency action plan. The inquest was able to find that there were actually many opportunities for police to intervene and storm the cafe before any of the hostages were killed, but police miscommunications and oversights prevented this from taking place. Obviously, the people most affected by the siege were Tory Johnson and Katrina Dawson, as well as their families. Both Tory and Katrina were outstanding people, and it's only right to speak about who they were. Everything we've read about Katrina paints her as a quiet, modest achiever. She had a fantastic upbringing and never took that for granted, paying it forward to others as often as she could. Upon completing high school, she achieved a perfect enter score of 100%. She was also known for her sporting and extracurricular achievements. Katrina went to the University of Sydney, where she studied law and earned first-class honours, following this up with a Master of Law from the University of New South Wales, specialising in human rights law. Oh, my God. She went on to an accomplished career in law in which she was respected, loved and feared by her opponents. She was also a mother and wife and and strived to provide her children with the same privileges that she had growing up. Julie Taylor, who was a survivor of the siege and a friend and colleague of Katrina, said of her, If there is one thing, above all, that we can learn from Katrina's example, it is how to love, to show love, to use love, and by loving to make other people and places better. I believe Katrina's greatest achievement was to make sure that those she loved knew that she loved them, her children, husband, and all of her family and friends. Tori Johnson, the other victim of the siege, was also an exceptional person. He dreamed of one day becoming an architect. He met his partner Thomas in 2000 in New York and they were together for 14 years before Tory's death. They travelled the world together, immersing themselves in the culture and exploring. According to Thomas, Tory had the kindest, gentlest, loving and sensitive heart. Family was very important to him and like Katrina, he had so much love to give. Tory was overqualified for the position at the Lint Cafe but he took the job which he and Thomas perceived would be a bit of a break from Tory's hectic career as a restaurant manager. Those closest to him would share how proud they were of the person that he was, knowing that he never would have left anyone behind in that cafe. Tory and Katrina were, by all accounts, amazing human beings and a direct contrast to the person who took their lives, Man Haron Monis. Monis was born in Iran in 1964, the youngest of six children. He moved to Australia in 1996 and left behind a wife and child who he did not tell he was leaving. Not long after he moved to Australia, the Australian Security Intelligence Organisation, or ASIO for short, launched an investigation into him, although didn't think he was a terrorist risk or a danger to carry out politically motivated violence. This would continue on and off for years as Monis applied to stay in Australia. 
ASIO would find that Monis posed a risk, but not a violent risk, and eventually he was granted a protection visa and then became an Australian citizen in 2004. Monis dated a number of women in Australia, including his ex-wife, who is only identified as Helen Lee. Monis and Lee had two children together. She would later be murdered by another girlfriend of Monis's, Amira Drudis, who stabbed her 18 times and set her on fire. Her trial and sentencing took place after Monis was dead, and it was revealed that he was the one that orchestrated the murder of Helen Lee. Eventually, Amira began adopting Monis's way of thinking. Monis's religious beliefs during the 2000s started to become more and more extreme, and he set up a website to publicise his religious and political beliefs. At the time, while he was still married to Helen Lee, he insisted that she and their children only associate with other Muslims. She was not on the same page with his thinking and filed for divorce in the mid-2000s. At the time of the siege, Monis was known to the police. He had previously been charged with sexual assault against clients he had seen as part of a spiritual healing business he had operated throughout the 2000s. He would tell clients that they needed to undress and he would then bring them a bowl of water into the room and paint areas of the women's bodies before massaging, indecent touching and full intercourse. When a client resisted, he would say that this was the only way to cure her. Monis had also been noticed by police for his engagement in political protests. In 2000, he had participated in a hunger strike outside the WA Parliament. He did similar acts throughout the 2000s. Monis wasn't the most stable character, although he had been psychiatrically evaluated as not having any concerning mental health issues. However, Monis was brushed off by police as being a bit of a madman who desperately sought attention. From 2007 to 2010, he wrote letters to police, politicians, public officials and prominent members of the Muslim community with his conspiracy theories as well as his distaste for the killing of civilians by Australian soldiers in war-torn countries. Often his letters were ignored, which frustrated him when seeking attention was his primary goal. In 2007, he wrote to the Attorney-General about what a lovely and humble man Osama bin Laden is, trying to get a response. In 2008, he wrote an open letter to the families of the Bali bombers of 2002 and congratulated them for having martyrs in their families. He also sent letters to the families of Australian soldiers who were killed in Afghanistan, suggesting their deceased loved ones were murderers. This would see him charged and convicted of harassment, which he tried to have overturned. This bid was dismissed three days prior to the siege in Link Cafe. This case left Australia devastated, and contrary to what Monis said throughout the siege, he had made life much harder for many hard-working Australian Muslims. Thankfully, a social media movement inspired by the hashtag I'll Ride With You gave support to Muslims who may have been feeling vulnerable in the aftermath of the terror attack. There was reportedly an increase in anti-Islamic abuse in the days after the siege. The I'll Ride With You campaign was a small gesture to show solidarity between all Australians. Our thoughts and sympathies go out to the family and friends of Tori and Katrina, as well as all of the siege victims who I'm sure are still living with the consequences of one madman. 
Thank you for listening and until next time, please stay safe.